Another amazing week in Washington, D.C. Donald Trump has been acquitted by a minority of senators in his second impeachment trial. Did the impeachment of Donald Trump make him weaker or stronger? We talk about this and other big issues in the news. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the Socialist Program with Brian Becker. It's February 16th, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ivarum, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarum is also the host of the radio show On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. And our patrons-only seminar with Brian is tomorrow, Wednesday, at 7 p.m. Eastern. Subscribe now at patreon.org slash the socialist program and join us tomorrow night. Just under 17 cents a day can get you access to these monthly seminars where you can ask Brian any questions that you want. We'll answer them and then we'll put them out in uh, video and podcast form so you can access them later on as well. 57 senators voted to convict Donald Trump of inciting the mob that marched on the Capitol on January 6th to insurrection, falling far short of the 67 that were needed. After his acquittal, Trump vowed that his, quote, movement to make America great again has only just begun, unquote. What does this mean for the future of politics in the United States? Nicole, Donald Trump was found, well, it's not not guilty. Donald Trump was acquitted, meaning two-thirds of the senators in the U.S. Senate, the Millionaires Club in the U.S. Senate, two-thirds of the millionaires did not vote to convict Trump. And the Republicans who voted to acquit did so formally on a constitutional grounds that it's not possible and it's not legal, it's not constitutional to impeach, which means to remove from office someone who's no longer in office. But as we know, Mitch McConnell, the leader of the Republicans in the Senate, also made it clear that while he voted on the narrow issue of the constitutionality of the impeachment, he believed that Donald Trump was one morally, ethically, politically culpable and responsible for what happened on January 6th. And he also made the point, a point that the Democrats have really been loath to make while they were pursuing impeachment, that just because Donald Trump was acquitted on the impeachment trial doesn't mean that Donald Trump can't be held legally culpable in a legal proceeding, a criminal or a civil proceeding for the events related to his time in office. That's very, very important. We made the argument and have been making the argument that there's nothing in the U.S. Constitution that says that the president of the United States is above the law while he is a sitting president. There's nothing in the U.S. Constitution that says that you can't criminally prosecute a sitting president. That was a policy decision adopted by the John Mitchell Department of Justice. That would be Richard Nixon's 
Department of Justice in 1973 decided that no sitting president should be criminally prosecuted. Again, that was a Department of Justice policy. It's not a matter of law. But let's just get this discussion going about whether the impeachment of Donald Trump, again, now he's been acquitted for a second time in his second impeachment trial, whether it actually weakens or strengthens Trump. We've been making the argument here that this was a tactical blunder. That's been certainly the position that I've been advocating ever since the Democrats decided to go down this path. Right now, Donald Trump is celebrating. I'm looking at uh, CBS News, WUSA Channel 9. Former President Trump celebrates his acquittal and second impeachment trial. After his second impeachment acquittal, Donald Trump told supporters that, quote, our historic, patriotic, and beautiful movement to make America great again has only just begun. There's so much more to what happened on January 6th that wasn't touched upon by the impeachment trial. Again, the culpability of law enforcement or the military in the attack on the Capitol. That wasn't discussed. It was all about Donald Trump. But real quick, I want to get each of your opinions. Did this impeachment, what I consider to be a performance art theatrical event, did it actually strengthen or weaken Donald Trump? Let's start with Walter. I think that the impeachment trial of Donald Trump definitely strengthened his political position. Uh, I mean, such a huge part of Donald Trump's appeal is that he's anti-establishment, that uh, it's him against the world, it's him against the Washington elites. And that was exactly the framing, the dynamic that an impeachment trial allows him to draw on and to lean on when he had already left office because an impeachment trial is used to remove the sitting president and to apply some kind of legal sanction. He can't be removed from office because he's already out of office. And the harshest legal sanction that was on the table was that Trump would be barred from seeking office in 2024 or any future date. So it was easy for him to make the case to his supporters who were at the beginning of this whole process in the in the immediate aftermath of the January 6th attack on the Capitol, very, very demoralized because their push attempt failed to sort of re-energize them to rally around his cause, which is, you know, opposite to the political elites. OK, so you think it strengthens Donald Trump. OK, got that. But, you know, here's the thing, Esther, some people are going to make the argument that so much came out during the impeachment proceeding, even if he was acquitted, it's still, you know, it looks bad for Trump. Now, part of what happened after the impeachment vote, after the acquittal, and after Mitch McConnell voted to acquit, Mitch McConnell made a pretty strong denunciation of Trump. I want to play a couple audio clips. One is where he talks about Trump's culpability or his responsibility in the second audio clip talking about the fact that he can be prosecuted. Again, something the Democrats really haven't been talking about, not very loudly and not very clearly. Anyway, these are the things that the American people may have heard. And so some people will make the argument the whole procedure actually, even if Trump is acquitted, sort of weakens him. Let's listen to Mitch McConnell. And then Esther, I want to get your, your take. January 6th was a disgrace. American citizens attacked their own government. They used terrorism to try to stop a specific piece of domestic business they did not like. Fellow Americans beat and bloodied 
our own police. They stormed the Senate floor. They tried to hunt down the Speaker of the House. They built a gallows and chanted about murdering the Vice President. They did this because they'd been fed wild falsehoods by the most powerful man on earth. Because he was angry, he lost an election. Former President Trump's actions preceded the riot for a disgraceful, disgraceful dereliction of duty. All right, so Esther, so that's Mitch McConnell. We're going to play the other audio in a moment where he talks about that Trump, even if he's acquitted at the Senate, can still be held, you know, prosecutable by criminal law. But the argument will be made by the Democrats that by having the impeachment trial, it provided the forum, the vehicle with which Americans, the American people, the public can view the video images once again, not forget about how violent the attack was. And also, even if McConnell voted to acquit, his condemnation of Trump there is so, you know, very, very strong that that too will, will in fact, over the long term, weaken Donald Trump. Anyway, what are your thoughts? Well, I don't think that the impeachment strengthens or weakens him. I'm looking at a poll taken since the weekend in ABC Ipsos poll that says that 58% of Americans think that Trump should have been convicted. And I'm not sure if these are registered voters, but if you look at the fact that that means that 42% said that he shouldn't be convicted, that's far less than the amount of votes that he received. So I believe that the impeachment trial did convince a lot of people who were formerly Trump supporters that he should have been convicted and that he did incite a violent mob to attack Congress and to try and disrupt the peaceful transfer of power on January 6th. And remember, in one of our conversations, we talked about just an anecdote of a woman who had gone to the rally on January 6th and told a colleague of mine, another programmer, that if she had known that they were going to do that, she wouldn't have come. Right. And so I think that there were a lot of people who came to the Capitol on January 6th, all different kinds of people that weren't a part of the mob that ransacked the Capitol and also did not condone it. Secondly, I think that the impeachment procedures and all the facts that came out in terms of Kevin McCarthy trying to contact Trump and Trump basically saying, oh, well, it seems like, you know, these people ransacking the Capitol care more about the election than you do, Kevin. To me, that made the Republicans look weak, look corrupt. And as long as Trump is connected to part of the party or to people that are corrupt, that wouldn't even stand up for themselves and their own safety and the peaceful transfer of power means that it hurts him. Because, you know, Americans, maybe they were attracted to Trump because he was strong and he put forward an air of strength. But this makes him look weak and corrupt and it makes the people around him look weak and corrupt, like they're not willing to stand up for themselves or for the American people. Nicole, before we get your thoughts, we do have an audio clip where there's a discussion about that call with McCarthy. Yeah. So this is Jamie Raskin, who is a congressman, a Democratic congressman and one of the impeachment managers. And he's in this clip reading into the impeachment record, Republican Congresswoman Jamie Herrera Butler's statement 
about Republican House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy's phone call with Donald Trump during the insurrection on January 6th. Apparently, Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader, the call that Esther was just describing, apparently he told many people about this directly. He told Congresswoman Butler about this directly, um, and she wrote this statement. When McCarthy finally reached the president on January 6th and asked him to publicly and forcefully call off the riot, the president initially repeated the falsehood that it was Antifa that had breached the Capitol. McCarthy refuted that and told the president that these were Trump supporters. That's when, according to McCarthy, the president said, well, Kevin, I guess these people are more upset about the election than you are. So by some news reports, McCarthy responded, well, who the F do you think you're talking to? So clearly this was a very aggressive back and forth. And it shows why Trump should be impeached, essentially, or it shows why he could be, I don't know, prosecuted for inciting an insurrection. There's been other evidence of this, and we've talked about this on the show, Brian, you especially, that while Trump was supposed to be at the Capitol, that's what he'd said he would do. That's what he told his base he would do. In fact, he was hiding, but he was making phone calls. He was calling people, you know, Republicans and being like, well, don't you regret your vote? Like, do you want to change it? Like, this is more evidence of that. But one thing I want to go back to, Esther, I think the poll you brought up is really interesting. And my question would be, is there polling that shows approval of Trump or disapproval of Trump right after the insurrection? I mean, I know there is, you know, his approval was at very low lows. You know, I would think that it's actually the insurrection itself that showed some of Trump supporters that they, you know, shouldn't be or, you know, are no longer Trump supporters rather than the impeachment itself. Because the impeachment itself, as both of you have talked about, it was so personal. It was in this very individualistic sense rather than really putting these pieces together and showing that this guy literally incited a a riot and an insurrection on the Capitol building. It was like, I was upset. I was offended. I was hurt. I was scared. And of course, it was very scary. But but okay, McCarthy says to Trump, they're in the Capitol. He's calling Trump and saying, look, call this off. This is dangerous. Pence is in hiding. People are going to get killed here. And Trump is like, No, I guess these people, the attackers, care more about the election than you do, Kevin. And Kevin says, who the F do you think you're talking to? And that's sort of the end of the call. And this is a conversation he recounted. So this actually happened. And then what happened the next week? McCarthy goes to Mar-a-Lago, gets down on his knees, kisses Donald Trump's ring, does his genuflection. And how could we think then that Trump is really weaker if McCarthy, the same individual, is making the sojourn to Mar-a-Lago, I mean, doesn't it really say that in spite of the fact that, yes, this evidence came out, yes, the people in the United States could see how violent the attack was, that in many ways that doesn't disrupt Trump's popular base, at least a big part of it, because his base has been told over and over and over again, and with some plausibility, that Donald Trump has been a victim of the elites from the beginning. They believe the election was stolen. They believe that the Democrats refused to accept the 2016 election outcome when Trump narrowly beat Hillary Clinton in the Electoral College because the Democrats then concocted their own conspiracy, which was that Trump was only president because of Putin. Trump was only president because some internet research agency, a troll farm in St. Petersburg, took out $42,000 worth of ads that didn't even talk about the election. But because of that, we have Donald Trump. 
And then there was the Mueller investigation for two and a half years until it actually, when the results came out, they said, no, there was no collusion. And then the impeachment of Donald Trump the first time around Ukraine, because he had a conference call that slowed down the weapons shipment to Ukraine, something Obama wouldn't actually have done. He said no to those weapons. They impeached him for that. And then people went to bed on election night thinking, oh, Trump's in the lead. And for the next six weeks, they're told over and over again, these same Democratic Party elites and the establishment elites, the swamp that refused to accept the legitimacy of Donald Trump's election, are now impeaching him again, in spite of the fact that he can't be removed from office because he's not in office. And so it seems to me that this actually completely plays into Donald Trump's narrative that one, he's the victim, and two, bottom line, he always ends up winning. And that's really, really important. And dangerous. And Yes, and dangerous. But Walter, in the impeachment trial, there was nothing about the role of, say, law enforcement. No talk about what the military did or didn't do. It was all about Donald Trump's speech and his incitement. But there's so much more to this story. Because, in fact, the FBI knew, the fusion centers knew, all law enforcement knew that there was going to be an armed protest in the Washington, D.C. by people who were being told that the country was being stolen from them. I'm looking here, Walter, at Wall Street Journal. One change implemented almost two decades ago to improve intelligence sharing between local, state, and federal law enforcement and emergency response agencies was the creation of fusion centers in every state and territory. On January 4th, the heads of the fusion centers convened a rare national call to discuss alarming information they were gathering about the coming Trump rally. The offices were seeing an unsettling amount of online posts about people planning to bring weapons to the event, raising the potential for violence, send one participant. As is protocol, the participant said, the information was then funneled through the Washington, D.C. Fusion Center to the federal and local agencies handling security on January 6th. Quote, we all assumed there were going to be problems based on the various issues we were hearing, close quote, the participants said. The fusion centers have no say in how their intelligence is used, and it is unclear that the steps were taken in response to sharing this information. Then the article goes on to say on that same night, Monday, January 4th, the FBI convened its own emergency call with other law enforcement saying the same thing that Trump supporters were coming to the Capitol with weapons, and they were being told there was going to be a march on the Capitol at the moment that the Capitol, which houses the U.S. Congress, was going to be in session to certify the election outcome. And how could it be then? How could it possibly be that this Capitol building was unprotected? And now Nancy Pelosi says, oh, we need a 9-11 commission, a 9-11 style commission. No, Donald Trump and his co-conspirators should be prosecuted for seditious conspiracy. And there must be an investigation about the role of police, the FBI and the military in terms of the real collusion here or elements of them in collusion with this effort to stop the election outcome from being certified. 
I completely agree with you. I mean, there are so many unanswered questions that we still have left over after this impeachment trial. I mean, why were the Capitol Police, many of them, not really resisting hardly at all when the mob advanced on the Capitol building? Why was the National Guard repeatedly blocked from being deployed? You know, certainly that must have something to do with Secretary of Defense Christopher Miller or the Secretary of the Army. You also have to ask questions about the roles of the House and Senate sergeants at arms, the officials that are responsible for the safety of those chambers. And then there's actually more there, right? There's like the reconnaissance tours, so to speak, uh, that many members of Congress said that, you know, far right members of Congress were giving to leaders of the mob. I want to know what happened to Congresswoman Ayanna Presley's panic buttons. Um, I mean, that's such a huge story to me. I mean, somebody went in and ripped out the security technology that some Congress members had installed in their offices. I mean, this must have been coordinated on some significant level. And and I think this was the alternative to impeachment, is to say, like, this is a clear-cut matter of criminal behavior. Donald Trump is, this is what, you know, Biden would say, uh, you know, Trump is a private citizen now. I run the Justice Department, and the Justice Department should go ahead and prosecute this dangerous criminal who just incited this far-right insurrection assault on the Capitol building. But that is not what Biden signaled he was going to do. He signaled that he had basically no appetite whatsoever to do that. He's put out a statement after Trump's acquittal. He started off the statement, interestingly, by lauding the police officer who died in the riot, in the attack. You know, there's been such an effort to rehabilitate the image of the police. And so Biden said that the senators who voted to convict did their duty, quote, to defend the truth and to defeat the lies. But then he said that his goal was to, quote, end this uncivil war and heal the very soul of our nation. That is the task ahead. And it's a task we must undertake together as the United States of America and the statement underlined united. So that doesn't sound like a guy who's about to hold Trump or his co-conspirators to account. I do think that a couple of things that came out in impeachment, I thought resonated with the American people. And the idea that there is, as it stands now, this January exception, right? Where the Republicans wanted to argue that he was not able to be impeached for his actions on January 6th. And I also think that the impeachment showed the weakness of constitutional remedies to hold a president or other elected officials accountable we mentioned on this show the fact that there's been this legal precedent, even though it's not a law established where a sitting president cannot be indicted, yet a president out of office cannot be impeached. And so the process showed the weakness in the system as it stands. You know, we use the expression sometimes that a trial is a show trial because you know at the end that the people who are putting on the trial are going to get a conviction that it's a farce, that it's a show trial ending in a conviction. This was maybe unprecedented, I think, in the history of show trials because the people who put on the show trial knew that there was going to be an acquittal. So you have a show trial knowing that the person you're going to put on trial is in fact going to be found not guilty because they knew in advance that there wouldn't be 17 Republicans. So Weirdly, we have the rising tide of ultra-right sort of fascism, the reemergence of an open, explicit white supremacist movement 
The Proud Boys don't call themselves Nazis. They don't call themselves the KKK. But in fact, they are. They stormed the Capitol. They dispersed it. They tried to kill people in Congress. Police officers were killed. The peaceful transfer of power was broken up. And so a show trial aimed for and knowing that there would be an acquittal was the best that the Democrats could offer. And again, I think it doesn't make a dent into Trump's base. I don't think it really moves them. If you believe that your country is being stolen, if you believe that there's a massive fraud and the remedy is to take forceful action and even risk arrest, a lot of those people won't appear to be you know, like traitors or something like that. They're going to look like heroes to the people who believe that. Anyway, again, the Democrats played such a role in the last four years of creating these other conspiracy theories instead of challenging Trump on what he should have been challenged on. Like instead of saying Trump is a xenophobe and immigrant workers are necessary for the economy and they are our neighbors and they are our co-workers and we shouldn't try to treat them as second-class citizens or criminals. We should reject racism. We should embrace people regardless of their nationality or ethnicity. Instead of that, instead of educating working-class people in the United States about the need for overcoming racism, the Democrats did nothing but focus on this hoax, which was that Trump was a puppet of Putin in the Kremlin and that he was making Putin stronger and that he made Kim Jong-un stronger by entering into peace negotiations. Like, ooh, how terrible. Like, these are the arguments that the Democrats marshaled over the past four years. And for Trump's base, they fall flat. They would have thought, well, ending the war, the permanent state of war in Korea, why is that so bad? Talking to Putin and having meetings, why is that so bad? Withdrawing troops from Afghanistan, that doesn't sound so bad. So, you know, I think the Democrats are inadequate, I mean, to put it mildly, ineffective in terms of combating the rise of ultra-rightism and, in fact, actually contribute to it. They actually contribute to it. And when you look through, you know, the rise of fascism, the classical fascism in Europe, in Germany and Italy, where you know fascism really first took root in continental Europe after World War I, and then spread to the entire continent. All of capitalist Europe was fascist by 1940 or 41. The liberals and the social democrats and the forces that tried to fight fascism with these very ineffective methods actually contributed to its ultimate success. Now, we have to end this part of the discussion because I know there are other big issues that we want to talk about. But before we do, I want to go back to the other audio clip with Mitch McConnell, because, again, Mitch McConnell is saying something that the Democrats could have said in unison, but did not say. And again, it doesn't appear that Biden or his Department of Justice is really going after Donald Trump. The people who are going on trial like the Proud Boys, they're going to say, Trump made me do it. And Trump's going to say, no, I didn't. I just made a speech. May have been a little bit hyperbolic about fighting. But, you know, they did it. I didn't do it. And so on and so forth. But again, we have to put all the pieces of the puzzle together to see what this conspiracy really was, because it wasn't simply Trump and it wasn't simply the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters and the Proud Boys who were, you know, attacking the police that day. It was something bigger and broader. Let's listen to McConnell and how he frames the question. Indeed, Justice Story, 
specifically reminded that while former officials were not eligible for impeachment or conviction, they were, and this is extremely important, still liable to be tried and punished in the ordinary tribunals of justice. Put another way, in the language of today, President Trump is still liable for everything he did while he was in office as an ordinary citizen, unless the statute of limitations is run, still liable for everything he did while he's in office. Didn't get away with anything yet, yet. We have a criminal justice system in this country. We have civil litigation, and former presidents are not immune from being accountable by either one. Right. So Mitch McConnell is basically saying Trump isn't out of the woods yet. Mitch McConnell wants law enforcement to take down Donald Trump because Mitch McConnell wants to rid the Republican Party of Donald Trump. But Trump is so popular. He's so popular with the Republican base that the Republicans don't want to take responsibility for bringing him down. But they would be glad if the Department of Justice did it or if there are state probes. There's the New York state probe about Trump's financial dealings and, you know, Paul Manafort style crimes that were undoubtedly committed. In Georgia, there's the investigation about election interference. And of course, as we've been making the argument, if there was a seditious conspiracy, and there was, it was only undertaken at the behest of and by Donald Trump. So he could be facing criminal prosecution then too. But again, In order to really go at Donald Trump's base, which, you know, we have to think about it. How did Donald Trump get so popular? Why did 70 million people vote for Donald Trump? And it's not simply, you know, the argument that, you know, it's poor white working class people have been swept into the Trump camp. I mean, when you look at who actually participated in this rebellion, I mean, there were business owners, CEOs police officers, active duty members of the military. It was not basically a poor people's crowd. There may have been some poor people there on January 6th, but this was largely a more financially together group, maybe middle class. Why does Donald Trump succeed right now in creating what's essentially a cult around himself? There is a Donald Trump cult in America, and it brings us back to the issues that there is this reservoir of reaction and white racism, white supremacy, you know, where Trump has been able to appeal on the basis of extreme nationalism and racism, really, to bring together a coalition that backs him or a, a base that supports him. How does that get undone? And it won't simply be by even criminally prosecuting Trump, although A fascist movement needs a leader. If Trump were to be criminally prosecuted, that would be a big, big deal. The issue for the left, and I think for us as the socialist program, we have to make the argument, we have to split the Trump base. Those parts of the Trump base that are poor people, that are working class people, but are being swept in to this ultra-right, semi-fascist movement around Donald Trump, they can only be fought or, or won over on the basis of having a strong position of solidarity, anti-racism, and an economic program that speaks to their needs. I mean, 50 million people are hungry right now. 50 million people are food insecure, as, as the euphemism is now used. 40 million people are facing evictions. A whole bunch of them had to be Trump supporters, right? They weren't all supporters of Joe Biden. So how do you reach 
that part of the population. There has to be a militant fight back that brings together black and Latino and Asian and Native and Arab and white people who are fighting on a progressive program. And of course, the Democrats are not going to embrace that because the Democratic establishment, at least, is so, so wedded to Wall Street, Wall Street bankers, to the capitalist system, and to the military-industrial complex. Let's go on to another story. I think this story, Nicole, can be called Capitalism is Very Bad for Your Health, or Capitalism is a Bizarre, Absurd, Irrational System that Makes Epidemics Even Worse, Pandemics Even Worse. But the new information about what's gone wrong with America's management of COVID-19, it's mind-blowing. So there's a piece in the New York Times called, Can't Find an N95 Mask? This company has 30 million that it can't sell. You know, it starts off talking about this one company, but it's not just one company. I'll read from the article. In one of the more confounding disconnects between the laws of supply and demand, Many of the nearly two dozen small American companies that recently jumped into the business of making N95 masks are facing the abyss, unable to crack the market despite vows from both former President Donald Trump and President Biden to quote unquote, buy American and domestic production of essential medical gear. So let me just explain what all of that means. Essentially, there is currently an annual need in the U.S. for 3.5 billion masks, these high quality, like good medical grade masks and 95 masks for the health sector. The big domestic companies that hospitals and other of these health organizations normally work with, like 3M and Honeywell, have increased their production, but they're getting 120 million masks per month. There's a huge gap in what needs to happen. So, you might imagine. I, we all know about the American dream, right? You see a need, you have a great idea, you go for it. So a bunch of small companies have said, let's jump in. They've jumped through all the hoops, they've gotten certifications, and yet they're not able to break into the market, essentially. And there's a couple of reasons for it. One is you know, investments, like one's getting the money. That's definitely a barrier for some. But even those who have already um, gotten everything funded, even manufactured the masks, hired thousands of people to work. They're facing these hospital systems, medical supply distributors, state governments, all these bodies that already have set contracts or they buy in specific amounts of bulk or they don't want to stray from familiar companies, familiar products, even though these products have the right certification and are the right products that are needed. And again, we're not just talking about like getting the you know a company getting the right pancake mix or something we're talking about N95 masks that right now as we speak many many people in the medical profession who are at very high risk for getting covid are not adequately protected with we could use these millions of masks that small companies have made to protect people and the biggest thing is that a lot of these american made masks and this will not surprise anyone but a lot of these american made masks more expensive and that's another reason that small companies have been unable to sell these masks, even though they have masks that medical providers need and medical providers need masks. But it because the capitalist system does not allow this to happen. It does not allow it. They should have been making MX missiles. Then the government would have bought them and made sure that they were distributed properly. Exactly. And made sure they had plenty of profit. And I want to say two of Biden's first executive orders were worded to address this. But according to The New York Times, a lot of the small companies still haven't been contacted. None of this has been fixed. Okay, so Biden is president. Capitalism is still our social and economic order as a consequence 
more failures are on the way, both with the pandemic and so many other areas. Esther, time is going really short, so we're going to hit these other issues quickly. We're getting a sense of the Biden foreign policy. Talking about the difference between Trump and Biden, well, when it comes to foreign policy, not so much. Well, Brian, Nicole and Walter, it's pretty clear that despite Joe Biden denouncing Trump's foreign policy when he was campaigning for office, he is actually maintaining some of the most hawkish and dangerous policies of the Trump administration, especially in the U.S. relationship with Iran and China, which we know is a nuclear power and the world's second largest economy about to be the largest economy. So now after nearly a month in office, as he approaches his 30-day mark on Friday, he is, for example, when it comes to China, saying that they are studying Trump's policies as if they, as if he and his foreign policy team, headed by Antony Blinken, haven't already studied the policies over months, right? And so these policies include tariffs and sanctions that have punished U.S. consumers more than China, which was the only economy, I think, in 2020 to actually grow around the world. So related to these sanctions, having the Chinese Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou so-called detained in Canada and I actually say kidnapped in Canada and to face possible extradition to the U.S. And so the U.S. claims that Meng tricked HSBC holdings into processing transactions that put the bank at risk of violating American sanctions against Iran. So in this alternate world that is U.S. foreign policy, a Chinese company is supposed to abide by illegal U.S. sanctions on a third country. So I know people don't talk about this case that much, but it really gets to me the illegality, the hubris, the lies, the imperialism, and even the white supremacy at the heart of it, this kind of you know, gangster rogue, ugly moves by bullies, war criminals like Trump's Elliot Abrams, Mike Pompeo and John Bolton. And the fact that Biden hasn't squashed this by now is just really alarming or concerning. Also this month, Biden sent a warship through the Taiwan Strait and also sent a collection of warships and aircraft carriers to conduct war simulations in the South China Sea. And this costs millions of dollars each day. If that's not enough, there's Biden's creation of a so-called anti-China task force headed by a China hawk, Eli Ratner, who in 2017 described China's calls for cooperation with the United States as a festering concept. And so he wrote in the journal Foreign Policy that, quote, senior Trump administration officials should make it a top priority to dispense with this concept as soon as possible, first by politely and privately asking Beijing to refrain from using it, and then, if necessary, by publicly denouncing it. The longer they wait to do this, the harder and more awkward it will get, end quote. So it will get more awkward to denounce calls for cooperation and mutual respect because they're trying to ramp up this war in the meantime. China is sticking with this stance of multilateralism. And so it must be infuriating for the Biden people who want to proclaim that, you know, the U.S. is back, you know, as Biden said in his first foreign policy address. But even President Xi of China drew praise for his speech at last month's World Economic Forum in Davos. And, you know, just looking into this particular issue, it seems that the Biden administration is perhaps learning not to be bullied on its domestic policy, you know, in order to shore up its base. 
but they only know how to do imperialism one way, right? And that's with war and threats of war and using the world's you know, biggest military death machine, you know, even at a time when the world is in such crisis and, you know, we need those kinds of resources here at home. Walter, let's move quickly to another important story, real a serious repression against independent, alternative and left wing media in India, the media that was becoming a voice for an advocacy for the huge protest by Indian farmers. That's right. Um, So last week, the office of one of the leading media outlets in India, one of the leading independent media outlets in India called NewsClick, was raided by police. And this is part of a wide-ranging crackdown on freedom of expression in India, on the farmers movement, the the enormous farmers movement that has shaken the far-right government of Prime Minister Modi to the core. So yeah, I mean, the police attacked this leading media outlet. They, you know, accused them of all sorts of bogus things. And then they interrogated the editor-in-chief of this media outlet, this journalist, for over 100 hours inside his own home. I mean, this is probably the longest interrogation in the history of this particular branch of the Indian police forces, of the security forces. So yeah, I mean, I think this is something that's very crucial for progressive people, for left-wing people, for anybody who really values freedom of the press to pay close attention to, because this is something that gets to the heart of what it means to be, you know, progressive alternative people's media. I mean, NewsClick was covering this enormous farmer struggle, hundreds of thousands of farmers who are besieging the capital city to demand that their rights be respected. And NewsClick was the leading outlet covering that struggle, and then they were brutally attacked. Let's go to another story. We'll actually end with this story. We're in solidarity with independent, alternative, progressive media in India. Uh, But right here in the United States, there are going on more than 300 federal conspiracy cases against progressives, against leftists, against people who are anti-racist, participating in the movement for black lives, that movement that took off during the spring and summer. And foremost among all the cases is the group of people in Denver. We were able to talk to Lillian House. She's a member of the Party for Socialism and Liberation. She was perhaps, if not the foremost, one of the foremost leaders of the movement during the spring and summer. And even for the year before that, demanding justice for Elijah McLean, the 23-year-old black man who was brutally murdered by the police for no reason. I mean, they killed him because they could. And there was this mass movement, a peaceful movement. And the people in Denver, including Lillian, Joel Northam, Eliza Lucero, arrested in this dragnet coordinated arrest on September 17th. They're now facing 50 years in prison, 50 years in prison with multiple felonies. And they were the leaders of a mass peaceful movement. We talked to Lillian House about new developments in this case. The trials are coming up, but there needs to be growing national and international solidarity with them. Let's listen to a short clip we have from Lillian House. Hey, thank you for having me on. So we have now been fighting this case for nearly five months. We are heading towards our arraignment hearing in one of the counties that we're charged in on March 1st. We're charged in two counties and we have a preliminary hearing coming up on March 9th in the other county. And so in many ways, this case is really just getting started. But as the case gets rolling, the fight to oppose this prosecution 
not just from Denver, but all over the country, is gaining momentum as well. We are really excited about an initiative that formed in January called the National Committee for Justice in Denver, which has as its mission to raise awareness about this case and to mobilize public support throughout the country to oppose this political prosecution, not just because it's unjust and because it could put innocent protesters behind bars, but also because the case could carry truly grave implications for all people who rely on their First Amendment rights to stand up to the people in power and to challenge injustice, you know, whether that's their employer or people in you know, other movements. And the National Committee has the endorsement of leading constitutional rights voices from all over the country, legal scholars, labor leaders, community organizers, educators, journalists, both from Denver and around the country, as well as tens of thousands of individuals and community organizations. So this is really an incredible contribution. I think that it is extremely important that these prosecutors understand that this case will not be litigated in the dark. And now in recent weeks, over 40 cities have decided to form local affiliates of the National Committee for Justice in Denver, meaning that they are taking up this work of spreading awareness and mobilizing public support uh, for the defense effort in their cities. And so, you know, I just want to applaud this effort and say how deeply grateful we are, you know, from all of us who are facing these charges. Um, I think that what's happening with the National Committee and the local affiliates really sets the standard uh, for how we as a movement can fight back when we're faced with this challenge of, you know, really serious repression. The police and the prosecutors here are trying to send the message to all of the people who came out this summer who fought for justice for their community in the ways that we are, you know, allowed to do under the law, who are fighting for justice, they're trying to tell them that, look, we can arbitrarily abduct you. We can arrest you. We can jail you. We can force you through a grueling court process. We can possibly put you away for decades, even if you've committed no crimes, even if all you wanted was safety for your community. So we can't take that. We have to fight back. And we do have the power to defeat these attacks when we have the kind of unity and the solidarity that this committee represents. I really want to encourage people to check out the website of the National Committee at denverdefense.org. You can see the list of all of the initial signers. Soon you'll be able to view and get connected with the local affiliates. You can read more about the case and actually watch an excellent documentary uh, produced by Breakthrough News, which covers, you know, the struggle for justice for Elijah McLean and uh, the, the prosecution that we're facing. And you can find many ways to support there, you know, whether that's donating to the defense fund, um, whether that's writing the district attorneys, getting your organization involved, signing the petition. So please check that out. It's denverdefense.org. And thank you so much, Brian, and to all of the producers for having me on and continuing to uplift this case. Really love the show and appreciate your work. Okay, that was Lillian House in Denver. She is facing 50 years in prison along with other defendants. Again, go to the website denverdefense.org to show your support. Again, it's really amazing that uh, there's so much support. 15,000 people signed the petition demanding the charges be dropped. Now there are support committees, defense committees, local chapters in more than 40 cities demanding their freedom, demanding that the charges be dropped. But Nicole, that's it for this segment. We'll be back on Wednesday with Richard Wolf. 
And again, we're going to be talking with Richard about the state of the capitalist economy, the crimes of big business. And then on Thursday, we'll be back with our deep dive segment called The Real Story. And again, for all of those who are patrons, join us at the seminar that we'll be having tomorrow, Wednesday. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.